for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Well, welcome. I hope that you all are coming in today, and I hope that you are well. I hope that you've had just a fabulous week. Uh, But in all likelihood, I bet there's people in here, you're coming in dragging a little bit. You feel like you have an emotional or relational limp from a hard week. I don't know if you're here and you're among friends and it's like, ah, Mark, you're here. It's got to be so good to be together. Or maybe you're in a room full of strangers and your blood pressure's up and like no one sat here because they're just afraid I'm going to call them out and you hope I don't do that on your first Sunday. Your blood pressure's up. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe or maybe you vehemently and completely disagree with us on just about everything. I just want to say to every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are welcome and you are wanted, and I'm glad that we're together. I'm glad that you're here. I think the Holy Spirit has been at work drawing us in toward each other and toward the Lord Jesus, and it's a gift to be together. So there's a guy, you probably know him. He exists on every college campus. He goes by different names, but he's on every college campus, and the first thing that you need to know about him is that he's been there for a while. And he's really fun when you first get there because he's got the craziest stories and he's made the worst life choices that turn into really entertaining, you know, anecdotes. And, uh, you know, he's he's been around there for a while and, you know, he his fourth year turned into a fifth year and then maybe a sixth year and a seventh year. And now you're a junior and the guy is still there and he's still partying like he did like all the freshmen and he's still skipping class, not making any progress toward finishing that general studies degree. And, you know, after a while, this story of comedy with this guy begins to turn into a tragedy. And you're like, oh, it's just getting sad. You can rent a car at cheaper rates at this point, and you're still going. You know, his health insurance, his car insurance premiums are going down. He's getting that old. It's a story of arrested development. And it's a story that the author of Hebrews desperately wants to avoid happening in the church. This is a group of people who have been around the block, so to speak, spiritually. Their their parents had been the trailblazers of the faith in their city. They saw God do great things. They know all of the stories. They have inherited this legacy. 
And yet they're growing lax and complacent in their faith. They're getting bored as Christians, and it's beginning to show. And the author of Hebrews desperately wants this community who should know better to realize their full potential as followers of Jesus. He wants to see them grow into Christian maturity. Now, this is the fourth fourth week we've been studying Hebrews. If you go back to the very beginning, the first three or four verses of chapter 1 are so great. And the author says, y'all, I want you to appreciate that the way that God is speaking to us now is discontinuously different than the way God has spoken in the past. We got signs and symbols and foreshadowings, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe goes on to say if God spoke through, through Abraham and the patriarchs and Moses and there were consequences for those then who failed to listen, how much more will the consequences be for us who fail to hear the voice of God the Son speaking in the person of Jesus Christ? Pay attention. The author warns them against being enticed back to the comforts of Egypt, a metaphor for saying, like, about getting enticed back to the way that they lived before that they knew Jesus. Uh, Dr. Pascal shared last week out of uh, Hebrews chapter 4 that the author of Hebrews compels the people to go back to the scriptures to be like uh, an elective surgery. The surgery, the, the surgery of scripture, it cuts us open and it reveals not just our blood and our bones and our sinews, it, it reveals the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. It reveals these things not in order to shame us, certainly not but in order to remind us of how desperately we need to run to the feet of Jesus, our great high priest, who the scriptures say lives to intercede for us. And Jesus was tempted in every way like us and yet without sin, and so he gets what it's like to be a person, and he knows how to pray for us, and he lives to do just that. And on the heels of this, the author of Hebrews has just given these words of comfort, these words of encouragement to run back to Jesus. He now gives these words of challenge that come to us beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5. He gives us comfort and challenge in equal measure. I remember a time in high school where I had a coach or a teacher, I can't recall, that I felt like was being really hard on me. And I was lamenting this to my dad, and my dad said, no, you need to worry when they stop being so hard on you because it means they've given up. They see potential in you, and so they're trying to call you to your best. The author of Hebrews is doing just this with his original hearers. I remember one time when I was early in my ministry at Asbury, and I shared this open office with Todd, who's one of my dear friends, who's 10 years older than me, and Spencer, who's one of my dear friends now, who's five years older than me. And I was, you know, like kind of finding my legs in ministry and figuring out how to do this, and, and I was being very hesitant about a decision. I remember this day very clearly because Todd was here, Spencer was here, and Spencer called me out on my indecision. And he did it so rudely. And I remember my friend John Lawrence, who's a part of the church, was in the room. And there was a door over here. And as Spencer starts laying into me, John just starts going quietly like this. And the next day, Spencer gave me the worst apology of all time. He's a pastor in Springfield, Missouri. Now, what's funny about it is, as I see now, Spencer did not need to apologize to me. Spencer was telling me the truth, and I was allergic to it. 
He was telling me something that was true about me, and this theme comes up again and again, and I need truth tellers in my life. Now, sometimes in my less healthy moments, I, I feel like people who tell the truth like that are my persecutor. Do you remember the whole victim orientation thing that we shared last month? I treat myself as a victim, and I see this person as my persecutor, and I want someone to come and rescue me so I don't have to deal with the truth. But in my more healthy moments, when I'm operating out of like my restored image-bearing capacity, a creator's orientation to the world, we see these words of challenge not as persecutors, but as challengers in order to make us stronger. Now, these teachers were being challengers to me to bring out my best. Spencer was being a challenger to me to call me to my potential. And this is what the author of Hebrews is doing in a way that might have felt a little bit offensive to the original hearers. But he believes in them. Now, in the beginning of this chapter, he starts to go into this whole theological exploration of Jesus being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and I'm sure some of the readers were scratching their heads. He picks it up again in chapter 6 and then again in chapter 7, but it's like he realizes, y'all are not tracking with me. This is what he says in verse 11, to hear it again. He says, I have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. That's a phrase you should keep in your back pocket and try out with people at work. (laughs) Tell me how it goes. He's saying, look, okay, this whole Melchizedek thing, I'm getting into deep water here, but I'm afraid that you don't have the capacity to handle it goes on in verse 12 and says, in fact, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. He says, you need milk and not solid food. This is a dig. When you're a kid, the worst thing that someone can say to you is that you're acting like a baby. Because from the time that you're a baby, you're trying not to be a baby. You're trying to like hit those growth markers that are on the scale of moving toward greater independence, and parents are certainly watching those things. When do you transition into a big kid bed? When do you start riding your bike without your training wheels? When can you be trusted to be sent out into the front yard and not pummeled like a squirrel on the road? We're all watching because like, if we're behind on some of those growth markers, the worst thing someone can say to us is, you're a baby, or you're just acting like a baby. And this is what the author is saying. Y'all need milk. The author is lobbing that dreaded accusation against his readers, and then he picks it up again in verse 13, saying, Anyone who still lives on milk, being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now, full disclosure, I didn't prepare super well, so I'm hoping someone can explain what that means. Now, the teaching about righteousness, what does that mean? Uh, You you kind of read it, it says teaching, it makes you think like, well, maybe uh, the person who's immature just doesn't have very good theology. Maybe they need to go and read a couple more books. But it turns out this phrase, the teaching about righteousness, is an idiomatic expression with a specific meaning. The same phrase is used in a, a text called the Letter to the Philippians by a guy named Polycarp. Keep that in your back pocket for future children. Uh, Polycarp was an apprentice of John, the beloved disciple. So we're talking really, really early, maybe just on on the verge of the, the second century. And Polycarp wrote this letter, and the context of this letter gives us a little bit of insight to what this phrase, the teaching about righteousness, means. Polycarp says, Jesus endured everything. 
Therefore, let us become imitators of his patient endurance and glorify him whenever we suffer for the sake of his name. I, therefore, exhort you to obey the, say it with me, word of righteousness. Same phrase. And practice patient endurance to the limit, an endurance of which you've had an object lesson, not only in those blessed persons, Ignatius, Zosimus, and Rufus, you all know who that is, I'm sure, uh, but also in members of your own community, as well as Paul himself and the other apostles. The teaching about righteousness. What unites the context of Hebrews in Polycarp's letter to the Philippians is suffering for the sake of Christ. The teaching of, about righteousness means orthodoxy, ex- like right belief expressed through orthopraxy, right practice. And in particular, this phrase connotes patient endurance amid difficulty or suffering as a Christian. Those who are still babies have not learned to persevere when things get difficult. It's like the author of Hebrews is saying, you know what's keeping us babies in Christ? You know what's keeping us from growing or growing to a place of maturity? It's our unwillingness to persevere as Christians when things get difficult. Or in particular, it's our reluctance to keep going as a Christian when there are social consequences. That's probably a closer sense of of what it means to obey the teaching of righteousness, to be familiar with the teaching about righteousness. It's a Christianity without a cross. Now certainly Paul says that in Philippians 2, if we have any uh, uh, comfort from being united with Christ, any encouragement from Him, we get comfort in following Jesus, but He also gives us this universal demand. If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. There's comfort and there's challenge. Christianity is always cruciform. It's always cross-shaped. Jesus himself, human like us in every way and yet without sin, had this impulse to wonder, can I get through this without the difficulty? Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink the wrath of suffering, the cup of suffering. But then he goes on to pray. He had a deeper ambition than to avoid difficulty. He said, and yet not my will, but yours be done. The teaching about righteousness is enduring difficulty even when there are social consequences. Now, we face these consequences in in lots of different ways. As as Christians, there are virtues that we embody that that should make us different than just the average person who's not following Jesus. There are virtues like simplicity and generosity that should make people kind of curious about us. And there are also vices or or values that are are popularly held, socially accepted practices in which we are peaceful non-participants, joyful non-participants. Now, to make it quite practical, I could think of a couple of examples of, of people in my stage of life. What does it look like to, to have these community, these communally approved behaviors in which we're non-participants? Well, I ramped on screens a couple of weeks ago. Um, I don't know how many of you threw away your televisions. I hope there were many. But I remember the first time, this is now, I'm, I'm 11 years into parenting this week. It's amazing. And... Uh, Uh, I remember the first time I picked up a kid from Mother's Day out and saw another parent. No judgment. We're all having to learn to deal with the world as it is. But seeing another parent get their kid from the classroom, put him in a stroller, and without hello, without a hug, hand them a screen. 
And they're watching cartoons on the way to the car and then in the car on the way home instead of saying, hey, bud, how was your day today? What did you do? What did you color? Did you make any friends? I thought, oh, that script is dangerous. And screens play such a central role in our lives. And I think as believers, we should be non-participants in this kind of consumption. I love uh, Andy Crouch, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, said in his book, The Tech Wise Family. He says, I'm not telling you that you have to be Amish. I'm just telling you that you need to be almost, almost Amish when it comes to managing technology. I think about, here's, here's a dangerous one to talk about in, in Tulsa, is, is the role that sports play in our lives and the lives of our children. From really early ages, you know, dads, moms are thinking about, is my kid going to make varsity? Are they going to play college sports at some point? They're going to trainers and coaches, and it's like, we're talking about peewee soccer here. They're terrible. <laughs> but sometimes sports, like we're just following these social scripts, play such a central role in the lives of our children and in our lives, and we do it unreflectively. In time, they push out the things that we would say are more important to us but don't, aren't reflected in our lives. They start to compromise our ability to have the family culture that we want or they push out the role of faith or meaning, meaningful community from our lives. We should be thoughtful participants or non-participants and to use a Spanish word here, the locura, the madness of sports culture. Sometimes Spanish words only make sense. The other one I would just say is, is the, like, the social competitiveness that is intrinsic to uh, life in middle-class America. This, this, this drive that many of us feel in our own hearts and then we impose on our children for more, better, faster. You know, we're, we're doing like PSAT prep as their first graders. Uh, we're, we're training our children to adopt our own insecurity and anxiety and make them think that from the time they're little they have to perform, perform, perform. Now, in these departments and others, I believe as followers of Jesus, we should make choices that reflect that we're guided by a different value system. And that may create micro-social tension in our little relational networks. It might create awkwardness at times. People might think that we're being judgmental because of the choices that we're making. And we just need to accept in being followers of Jesus that in big ways and in small, we are different and people might not get that and accept that's just how it's going to be and be okay with that. Now, we might not think of this as suffering as believers, and when you, you know, contrast it to the suffering of believers all around the globe and throughout time, we think surely this is not suffering as a Christian, but it is a social consequence of following Jesus. There should be stuff that we do as Christians that prompts the question, even for members of our own families, why do you do that? I see everyone else pushing their kids you know, into the competitive river. Why are you not doing that yet? It's because we're Christians. We need to help our kids and we need to help each other to not only manage, but actually embrace the difficulty and the freedom that comes from living according to a different value system defined by the kingdom of God. And it's actually the willingness to accept that difficulty and even learn to love it that will help us move down the road toward maturity. 
John Tyson, in his book, The Intentional Father, outlines five shifts. The book is about raising sons, about fathers raising sons, but it's a useful parenting book. It talks about five shifts that a boy needs to make in order to become a man. One of the shifts is from ease to difficulty. That life is hard, accept it. That you're, you know, maturity is about meeting the demands of life. Immaturity is asking life to meet your demands and trying to raise uh, men and women, teaching them to accept the difficulty of life as intrinsic. The second shift from boyhood to manhood, said Tyson, is the shift from self to others. We do not exist for ourselves, but we exist to serve the sake of others. Sometimes that looks like upholding institutions. Sometimes it looks like being a selfless friend or a member of a church or working for a company or a cause, but we shift from thinking exclusively about ourselves to how can I steward my life for the sake of others. A third shift is from thinking that we are the whole shebang, we are the center of the universe, to accepting that we have a small part to play. The, the fourth shift that he talks about is the shift from control to surrender, recognizing that life is beyond my control. Therefore, I throw myself at the mercy of God. I trust in Him. And then finally, Tyson says the shift from temporary to eternal. Lord, let me give my life to things of consequence, things that have eternal value. Growing into maturity as a believer means embracing this shift from ease to difficulty. And the author of Hebrews explains how one gets to that place of maturity in verse 14, saying, Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Uh, when I was starting my study this week, I did just like a 25-minute, like, all right, Lord, make something jump out of the text kind of study. And it was these two words, constant use, that really jumped out to me. I was exploring in my imagination the idea of being a constant Christian. It flows from that idea of the teaching about righteousness persevering through difficulty. When I think of being a constant Christian, I think of those Olympian athletes you know, even some of the obscure sports, you know, like I'm going to offend someone here, like, like archery. It's like, how do you get that good at archery? Constant use. Like these people who are, are training are like focusing on the most minute details of their craft and their bodies and their food. There's, there's constant use. I think of the farmer who rises every morning and does the diligent work, the small behaviors that in the course of months talk about like, like deferred pleasure, like may yield a harvest. I think of uh, the people who inspire me, like authors and songwriters and artists who know that creative lightning doesn't just randomly strike, but it actually strikes when you just show up every day and you put in the work. And all of these are the ones who've made the shift from being an amateur to being a pro. This comes from the book uh, Turning Pro by Stephen Pressfield. It's a book about creative endeavors. The section's called How Your Day Changes When You Turn Pro. It says, when we turn pro, everything becomes simple. Our aim centers on the ordering of our days in such a way that we overcome the fears that have paralyzed us in the past. We now structure our hours not to flee from fear, but to confront it and overcome it. We plan our activities in order to accomplish an aim, and we bring our will to bear so that we stick to this resolution. This changes our days completely. 
changes what time we get up and it changes what time we go to bed. It changes what we do and what we don't do. It changes the activities we engage in and with what attitude that we engage in them. It changes what we read and what we eat. It changes the shape of our bodies. When we were amateurs, our life was about drama, about denial, about distraction. Our days were simultaneously full to the bursting point and achingly, heartbreakingly empty. But we are not amateurs anymore. We are different, and everyone in our lives sees it. I sent, uh, there's this passage in, I think, 1 Timothy 4 that I texted to a friend who's a young pastor. And uh, Paul says, uh, you know, in my absence, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to teaching. Guard your doctrine closely. He says, take pains with these things that your, evi- your, your progress may be evident to all. It's someone who by constant use is growing in their craft. You could contrast the constant Christian, the aspiring athlete, the faithful farmer, the disciplined creative to its antonym to the idea of being sporadic. And sporadic probably more closely describes many of our endeavors. Like, I'm a sporadic parent at times. Like, ah, I wanted to be better, but like I stop and I start. I'm here and I'm there. I'm sporadic in the kind of friend that I am, the kind of disciple that I am. We are all over the place. To be sporadic is occurring at irregular intervals or only in a few places, not integrated or whole, isolated. Many of us would say that our most important endeavors, we are sporadic in working on them, being a parent, a spouse, an artist, a friend, a Christian. One thing that separates the amateur from the pro, the one who practices sporadically to the one who is constant, is intention. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy talked about the power of intention in the lives of believers. He said, in the last analysis, we fail to be disciples only because we do not decide to be. We do not intend to be disciples. It's the power of the decision and the intention over our life that is missing. Now, perhaps we're not used to being spoken to so frankly, and it might be easy to take offense, but on the other hand, it could well prove to be a major turning point in our life if we would ask ourselves if we really intend to be life students of Jesus. I found this question, do I intend to be a Christian, a a surprisingly provocative one in my mind in my life this week. Because if you begin your day asking the question, today do I intend to be a Christian, it requires something that we do not prefer, which is self-definition, which is taking a position on something. You know, it's really easy to criticize people who hold public office, who take a position on things, but they have to take a position. We have the luxury of not having to. We sleepwalk through our days. We snooze on our intentions. But when I ask myself the question this week at the beginning of the day, today do I intend to be a Christian, it puts myself in a place of difficulty either way. If I say no, I have to deal with the moral ramifications of saying, like, I shortcutted my life with Jesus today. 
Or, on the other hand, if I say yes, then there's an expectation at the end of the day of evaluation. I'm thinking, how did I do in my intention, my desire to express my, apprentice, my apprenticehood to Jesus in my life? It requires self-definition. That's a pickle of a question. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, Today, as long as it is called today, do not harden your hearts as you did. I wonder if you were to answer candidly that question. Today, do you intend to be a Christian? What kind of answer you'd put on the line? The question of intention would be, do you desire, do you want to shift from being sporadic to being constant? And then importantly, in the context of the book of Hebrews, are you willing to deal with the social costs that may come with an affirmative to that question? As I was thinking about this and, you know, monitoring my own life, I thought of that story in the Gospels where the guy said to Jesus, I do believe in you, but help my unbelief. And I found myself praying, I do intend to be a Christian and yet help my weak intention. Made me think of, of come thou fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, I feel it. I'm prone, I have this proclivity to leave the God I love. Why do I do this? And he sings again, let thy goodness like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart. Why do I keep running away from you? Why do I keep sleepwalking and going on autopilot through life and forgetting my deepest intentions? And I spend my days just putting out fires and reacting to the next thing that happens. And so I began to think this week, is there a way that I could helpfully set my intention for today and, and reinform my imagination about what it looks like to be an apprentice of Jesus? And so I wrote this little reflection. We've printed it out. You're welcome to take one with you and put it in your Bible at the end of the day. I want to share this with you as a prayer and a way of setting your intention for being a disciple of Jesus. Today I intend to be a Christian, to walk with Jesus as I tend to the particulars of my day, to invite God's piercing word to expose my inner thoughts and attitudes and motivation, to obey the scriptures and not merely hear them so deceiving myself, to confess my sins to others so that I may be healed, to throw myself at the feet of Jesus, my great high priest, who mercifully prays for me. And to keep in step with the Holy Spirit who guides, convicts, and empowers me. Today I intend to be a Christian. To love my neighbor as myself. To love my enemies as Christ loved me when I was his. To love the family of believers and encourage others and build them up. To rid myself of anger and hatred in every bitter root. To purge myself of lust and covetousness and the sinful desire for more and to avoid the same dead-end patterns of behavior that have trapped me in the past. Today I intend to be a Christian, to be content and overflowing with gratitude, to be generous and willing to share, to be mindful of the poor, the widow, the outcast, the orphan, and the foreigner, to work hard as working for the Lord and not for an earthly master, to avail myself of God's divine power through which I have all I need for a godly life, and to ask the Spirit to manifest fruits and gifts in me so that I may be a light and a delight to others. Today I intend to be a Christian, 
to embrace the way of the cross and self-denial as the way to life, to resist taking the seat of honor and pushing myself to the front, to pursue a quiet life in all godliness and holiness, to reject violence and impatience and keep my feet in the way of peace, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and willing to be misunderstood, and to keep myself from being polluted by the world. Today I intend to be a Christian, to cast my cares on Him because He cares for me, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, to not be anxious but in everything with thanksgiving to present my requests to God, to persevere in suffering and in difficulty so I may be mature and complete, lacking nothing, to sow seeds for the kingdom of God and to abandon outcomes to Him, and to hold on to the hope of God's new creation and to resist a spirit of despair. Today I intend to be a Christian. I will not put my trust in princes or in chariots, but in the name of the Lord our God. I will not worry about tomorrow, for each day is enough trouble of its own. I will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. I will forget what is behind, and I will strain toward what is ahead. And tonight I will lie down, and I will sleep, because I know the Lord sustains me. Today, with God's help, I intend to be a Christian. May God so work in our lives and in my life. May the Holy Spirit so work in our community that we would be people who not only set our intention, but are given the grace and the perseverance and the courage and the mindfulness and the grit to see it through today as long as it is called today. And may we be like that person in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scoffer, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That one will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Everything they do prospers. May that be so for us. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we do intend to follow you, and I pray that you will forgive and you will help our lack of intention. I pray that you pour out your Spirit on us, Jesus, and so work in our lives and order our minds and reorder our loves that our our greatest desire to follow you would be reflected and expressed through our days. I pray that you'd help us to grow as a community of maturity, that we would eat this grand feast you've put before us and not live forever, forever as baby disciples who need to be retaught and retaught the basics. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we gather at the table today and you offer us this solid food, that as we eat the bread and the wine, that you'd make it be for us so much more than just that, but a means by which we're filled with the Spirit of God again. Pray that you'd be present. Be present, Jesus, our great high priest, as you are present with your disciples in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. Fill us with fresh faith, fresh courage, fresh insight, fresh power, fresh resolve to follow you today, as long as it is called today. As I pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. 
If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.